From KCRW, this is Nocturne. There's an intersection between the quiet, tender moments of night and the act of writing and reading poetry. It's a space where one can capture fleeting wisps from the darkness and then send them off for others to hold like fireflies in a jar. Poems from the night are like fragments of dreams forgotten upon waking, reminders of things lost to us in the day. I had started writing poems that occupied the night in a kind of personal and intimate way. And as always when I'm writing my own poems, I kind of think about the literary history that I might be joining or trying to join in some way in my own work. So to think about how other poets had written about the night, I turned to people I knew well, like Emily Dickinson. She describes following what is called a will of the wisp and the idea of following this light that appears in the swamp. And then I turned to someone like Thoreau, who's not first and foremost known for his poetry, but has what I think of as very poetic journals, and discovered that there was this whole chunk of writing in the American 19th century about the night. There's one um, that I'm always reluctant to mention because he kind of gets hijacked, uh, but Charles Bukowski is, uh, I'm a huge fan of his, and of course he worked for the majority of his life, you know, and he wrote famously about the jobs he did. And he, um, he wrote many, many times about staying up at night and typing on a typewriter and listening to the radio and, and drinking and writing away. Um, and it just something, I might not have quite the hard living that he had, but uh, the, the spirit is definitely something I reacted to. So, um, yeah, he's a great night poet. It was known that Emily Dickinson uh, suffered an eye condition. And one of the particulars of the condition was that it made it painful for her to be outside in the sunlight. Emily Dickinson loved to garden and began gardening at night. So there's this great quote by scholar Judith Farr. Speaking of Emily Dickinson, her neighbors recalled glimpsing a white figure, slightly illumined by lantern light, kneeling in the darkness above her lobelia and sweet sultans. Richard Brodskin, he wrote some really kind of fun, interesting poems. Um, and uh, this one, this bit I really liked. It was, the hour is midnight and the library is deep and carried like a dreaming child into the darkness of these pages. When would you write the things that you were most afraid to write or you were most afraid of being overheard? And I just imagined, probably invited by the idea of Dickinson writing at night, that there would have been other people for whom the night became the place to write. More of poetry from the night in a moment. I'm Warren Alney. On To the Point, if America ever used its thousands of nuclear weapons, it would be suicidal. In a nuclear war, there could be no winners. Everybody is a loser. All of civilization is at stake. We've known that for 75 years, but our weapons of mass destruction are still on hair-trigger alert, and just one man, President Trump, has the power to push the button. Is it finally time to make the world safer? On our To The Point podcast. (laughs) 
listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. The poem happens at night when they are alone. The poem happens when she kneels in front of a glowing flower. The poem happens when her fingers reach into the garden dirt digging not unlike a ghost at daybreak to get back inside a grave, because she is no longer afraid of death. The poem happens at night when he holds pieces of glowing wood in his hand, and the poem is the glowing wood, the glowing flower, the phosphorescent wavelets, and the weird globe of light over the swamp. Poet Cecily Parks I write at night when I can. Um, I sometimes write when Ernest, my one-year-old, is asleep and he's on my shoulder. And I, I think the world becomes a lot smaller, um, an electric light, and it suddenly becomes almost like a tiny beacon and the world is sort of uh, evaporated beyond it. Poetry, it's someone communicating with you directly and uh, offering a notion of hope. <laughs> Um, but not but not in a grandiose way, but just in a, like, something in their humanity, uh, something that they've stumbled upon. Poet Tom Harding. I think a poem, because it's often condensed, because it's often dense with language, with imagery, invites multiple readings. I read something recently where someone said poetry is, is the ability to slow down time and capture something, one specific thing, very closely. And I think that's a really nice relationship for a reader and poem to get into, where the reader kind of repeatedly goes back to a poem to figure out what's going on. And it's almost like studying it uh, as a means to capture something from it. And that's, that's where I guess the night does come into it thoughts become a lot longer that that ability to slow time down and really focus on something maybe focus on a thought just one particular thought or a feeling um, and really uh, bring it into close scrutiny so I imagine in a poem about the night responding to the night in some way engaging with the night that that reader has a chance to be immersed in that thinking about the night multiple times in many different ways that I think other genres, other ways of delivering information or experiences don't offer. I among them lean out on the creaking city, spying the lit windows like lanterns along a shore. Warm by the sight of souls still living to the music of a light left on. Reading something that someone else has written potentially in the middle of the night and then you read it in the night, it's like a kind of a quiet transmission from one, one person to another. It feels very personal, and that's that's something I really, I really relate to. I like poetry which you read, which is sort of, you know, the the voice in the head, 
the voice at 3am. I like that kind of quiet, that quiet voice. Reading versus hearing. What exists that does not reach our ears, stripped of auditory memory and context? Something so small and unadorned slips smoothly into the mind or heart of another. There's a Leonard Cohen poem, actually, where he says, I long to write what might be read by one like me on a night like this. You know, and it's that kind of that very personal personal expression of, of one person communicating to another. And, you know, that's very different to a lot of poetry. If you go to a poetry reading, it's, that's a very different experience. And I think there's a whole different different element to, 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 you know, to the reading words on a page. And that feeling of, of reading people that you feel like are on your wavelength, that is like a big deal to me. People that you connect with, or you don't have to necessarily connect with the whole person, but just with a space that they're in or something they're communicating. Sometimes I've had books of poetry and it's just occasionally a line or one poem. It's almost like a bit of a, an SOS or something. You read that in the night. I use the term night poetics to think about what happens in the night that cannot happen in the day, with a specific attention to those sensual relationships to the natural world that the night cultivates. Different ways of gathering information, hearing, touch, smell, taste, and results, I think, in a kind of unique poetry on the page. I found the last radio out amongst the forgotten things. Its insides empty, with a smooth mahogany body intact. I carried it home and kept it beside my bed, each night pressing my ear to its cool cavity to hear the sound of pine trees blowing back and forth and the pulling of black waves carrying me to sleep. Some nights it would howl like storm winds through a damp cave, other nights I'd wake to the clatter it across the floor and swear I'd see some shape, light as a fox, slip from its shell into the shadows of the room. Certain messages are best saved and savored in the shadows. There is a certain solitude that comes with either being the only person awake at night, the only person in your home awake at night, the only person outside in your yard at night. At least it feels like that, if you are that person, that poet, doing those things. But solitude at night, I think, does shade into loneliness. And I think it is because of that sense of perhaps being somewhere or doing something while the rest of the world is doing this other thing. But there's something joyful about solitude. Maybe that's the poet in me. It's in those moments of tender solitude that the impermanence of things has a chance to blossom into consciousness. I asked the stars, will you be my jewelry? The stars said, follow us. They drew me deep into the disheveled spruces to introduce me to loss. And then suddenly you're there for a period in the night and things have slowed down and... Um and the bigger picture comes in. The temporary nature to things, um, the knowledge, you know, that, and again, it is a cliche, but the, the, the life is, 
it's beautiful but it doesn't last and you know there are some wonderful things about it and there's some a lot of not wonderful things about it but that ability to focus and to draw out that kind of that that happy sadness that kind of bittersweetness to it um the eternal loss and impermanence to things is like well i i wouldn't want to swap not feeling like that if that makes sense it's like i want to have i want to have that awareness i mean i think we've all like stumbled across or passed someone crying publicly during the day and had mixed feelings about it you know like wondered why they were crying and also perhaps registering the sheepishness with which they they cry and i just i wonder you know if the night is the time to not only feel but express those emotions um, because you have a kind of privacy, because you have a kind of cloak of night to make you feel less seen, that is also a kind of permission to, to feel. What happens to our capacity to feel the distinct emotions evoked by solitude when solitude is scarce? I begin to think about the night as an environment, you know, in the way that like a wetland or a prairie is something we would think of as endangered now. I begin to wonder if the night also could be considered endangered. And just, I think thinking about the night as a place where, you know, only certain animals are active, certain plants are blooming, certain kinds of interactions with the natural world are possible, but others are are not. There was this whole chunk of writing in the American 19th century about the night that carried with it a kind of melancholy, um, maybe more for me than for the people writing it, because I knew that the kinds of nights that they wrote in and that provoked them to write were going to be disrupted by the advent of electrical lighting. Things must be so radically different now to to years ago when you read some of these writers and you think about some of these people writing you know there really isn't like that kind of that pitch black solitude that perhaps there was even a hundred years ago or something you know that doesn't exist now or not in the world i have anyway but i think definitely we're missing something then i'm going to tell him how i lived in the wild i ran out of electricity one autumn and camped outside sleeping by a stump whose rot coincided with my idea of discipline. Hundreds of years ago, the night was so long and there was nothing to do. If I think about someone like John Clare, who's a, who's a local poet, he lived in the 1700s and he's from Northampton here and he he was a great writer. I imagine the world that he was in and the length of night that he went through, you know, writing literally by candlelight and having the thoughts that he had, you know, it's just... It's not, it's not even imaginable uh, in some ways now. I feel like the poems about the night or the writing about the night that I encounter in people like Emily Dickinson and, and Thoreau, it's almost like visiting a natural history museum and like having this experience of something that, you know, feels farther away than, than I can kind of believe. And so... I think about the nights that made it possible to think the thoughts they did, write the way they did, as really unique to that time period. And the nights we write about now are are different um, in many ways, and not better, not worse. But there is something 
really tangible for me in the language of their poems that speaks to or communicates a quality of night that is different from ours. There was a kind of delight in losing oneself in the night that some of these writers communicate. The idea of being truly alone in the night is no longer possible in the way it was then. Our nights are illuminated from within and without. The eerie blue glow of information incessant accompanies us into the unknown and our solitude, only to dissolve it. I think the marker of a good poem is the fact that it's made us feel something. And I think good poems about the night make us feel not only the power of the night as a natural environment, but perhaps also the powerful loss of that night. I feel like I read poems to kind of feel the risk that went into writing them. And in the poems about the night that I read from, from the 19th century and earlier, I have a sense that there is even on the part of the authors what felt like a physical risk, like a really um, stepping into the unknown because of the quality of night that I imagine they experienced. I recognize that this can be like a willful kind of romanticization on my part. <laughs> But I do, I do feel like the stakes of stepping outside and being outside at night must have been very different for those writers and the relationships that they formed with celestial bodies or, or the out of doors would have been somehow more fraught with, with a kind of risk that I feel like is communicated in some of these writings. Poets have long captured and distilled the risks and pleasures of the night. The writer Robert McFarlane collected some of his favorite phrases related to nature. Doomfire is sunset light, which has the appearance of apocalypse to it. Shepherd's lamp describes the first star that rises after sunset. And along the North Sea coast, the word blaze means to take salmon by striking them at night by torchlight with a three-pronged spear. Acorn, beech, bluebell, buttercup, catkin, cowslip, cygnet, dandelion, fern, hazel, heather, heron. As a thing or experience is lost, often so too are the words used to describe it. McFarland discovered that the latest edition of the Oxford Junior Dictionary no longer contains many words relating to the natural world. The words themselves are dying out. Cecily Parks wrote a book of poems entitled O Nights, another word that is no longer in use. I first saw the word O'Nights in Thoreau's journal as he transcribed a, a local farmer's observations of him. And so the farmer observed that Thoreau was out O'Nights more than Ralph Waldo Emerson. And therefore, Thoreau, in the farmer's estimation, looked older. He had been sort of weathered and inexperienced and aged perhaps by the night. And so, I mean, I loved that word partially because I didn't know what it meant, but O-Nights means at nights, plural. And so I love the way it suggested an occurrence that would happen only at night, 
or it would describe you know experiences over multiple nights and it would it would be exclude whatever experience the word described would be exclusive to the night i think the word went out of use because you know experiences of the night started diminishing um and i i sort of link the disappearance of the word to the disappearance of the nights it described Without the words to recognize the fern and the pasture, perhaps my children will turn away from them, leave them unseen, which is a way of allowing them to vanish. In the places of the effaced flora and fauna in the Oxford Junior Dictionary, as McFarlane points out, are the new editions of our digital era. Attachment, blog, broadband, bullet point, celebrity, chat room, cut and paste, and voicemail. It is not hard to imagine the 21st century child waking up in the night and padding with bare feet to her computer, foregoing the darkness outside to search the bright internet with her fingertips. Better than a newspaper is a book of poetry because it's like an alternate news form. You know, it's a way to digest the world that isn't isn't media it isn't news it isn't twitter it's it's something else entirely and that and you can go and you can read about what people think about life you know what they they you know they might not be reacting necessarily to what's happening right this minute now but they're talking about things that have happened to humans right back to since we've you know got things chronicled and it's it's the human reaction to events so it's like um yeah, it's like a. I think of it as like a, it runs parallel to news media. It's like a, um, a different way to interpret uh, the world. Yeah, and I kind of think it's it's more preferable. It's less stressful. <laughs> I love that poetry as parallel news source, reporting not on the whims of politicians and financial markets, but on enticing and enigmatic natural wonders, large and small. Henry David Thoreau, like Emily Dickinson, encountered the -the Will-o'-the-Wisp and found it newsworthy, to say the least. On an expedition in the Maine woods one night, while fellow travelers slept, he went intending to stoke a waning campfire and instead came across a piece of firewood that emitted a strange glow. An elliptical ring of light. An investigation with his knife reveals a ring of sap under the bark, all aglow along the log little chips of which lit up the inside of my hand, revealing the lines and wrinkles and appearing exactly like coals of fire raised to a white heat. In folklore, a will-o'-the-wisp is an atmospheric light seen by travelers in the night, especially over swamps and marshes. They're often attributed to ghosts, fairies, and spirits, and as such, they're discounted. But not by Thoreau. He wrote in this essay, Night in the Moonlight, if I can show men that there is some beauty awake while they are asleep, if I add to the domains of poetry. Yeah, I do think he thinks of the Will of the Wisp as belonging to the domain of poetry, as something he can offer to the domain of poetry and to the people who are usually asleep while it is happening. The Latin name for the Will of the Wisp is Ignis Fatuus, meaning foolish light or fool's fire. The -the will-o'-the-wisp, both literally and metaphorically, can be a misleading light to follow in the darkness. But Emily Dickinson wrote, better ignis fatuus than no illume at all, or better a foolish light than no light. Today, science explains the -the will-o'-the-wisp as arising from the combustion of gas 
from decomposed organic matter. But Thoreau might have questioned the value of that explanation. Science would have meant nothing to Thoreau when he found the Will of the Wisp. He didn't, he didn't want it. He didn't need it. It would not have taught him any more than he learned by holding that glowing log in his hands, is his argument. Thoreau saw value in magic and the state of unknowing, both the domains of poetry and the night. Thoreau says, like, you know, science is for the daytime. You know, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think that's really important. The daytime is definitely a time of facts, and I guess that's a time of science. The world is really keen to box things up into being um, black and white. But I think that what's key to it is that things aren't black and white, and that is what poetry reflects. I think it was what Whitman said, you know, that he's vast and contains multitudes. You know, the idea that there's many different shades to the things, there's shades of grey, um, and that that is what poetry offers. I find that poetry is the place to be unsure or the place to remain in kind of an attitude of questioning rather than the attitude of figuring out, you know, the scientific reason for everything that I've described in this poem. Because I think we're, we're very answer-driven. You know, that's what Google is there for, to give us answers to our questions. And so by losing the space to not know um, it does feel like a loss of a certain kind of mindset, a certain kind of relationship to the world that I think would be really profitable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an unknowing. It's that feeling that there's, um, there's something deeper there um, that you can't quite describe in everyday conversation, but you need to get at it somehow. Um, so you sort of need to chisel at it with, with words and come to come to a closer understanding of it. But you don't have to fully understand it. I think that's what's important. I guess that comes back to the night in the sense that in the night you have these personal feelings, you have these thoughts, and it's that kind of feeling that you need to come to some sort of conclusion on things sometimes to put a, a lid on it. And that's where a lot of anxiety comes from. And I think it comes from a need to control things. But actually, you can say you don't understand it. It's quite easy, you know, there's a, very, there's a lot of complex things in the world that don't make sense and you can say, well, I can live with it. I'm still leaning at this table, trying to solve the riddle of the predicament by an electric lamp, while a moth taps at the window and the kitchen ticks dryly like the secret workings of a clock. The spider and I weaving quietly in our corners like the collaborators in the prison scene after lights out. Combing the blueprints, masterminding the architecture, trying to break ourselves free. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. The show is distributed by KCRW. Our senior editor there is Nick White. Nocturne also receives support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. You can find links to the work of poets Cecily Parks and Tom Harding at our website, nocturnepodcast.org, in the show notes for this episode. 
Tom has a book of poems entitled Night Work. And as mentioned in the episode, Cecily has one called Oh Nights. They're both beautiful. Also, you asked and we listened. We finally created some very cool Nocturne swag. T-shirts, tote bags, hoodies. You can find a link to our tea Public store at the website nocturnepodcast.org. Just go to the merch tab on the top of the homepage. Till next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.